Hello, and welcome to the Clock End Talk, an Arsenal podcast. You can find us on Twitter at clockend underscore talk, and me at AFC Schwinn. Now, I'm your host today, since Tez won't be joining us, and we're about to talk some MLS and Miguel Almiron. Now, full confession, I've only ever watched two games of Major League Soccer, but I know for a fact that's two more than Tony's ever watched, so I find myself being trusted with the role of the host on this occasion. Oh boy, this won't end well. In any event, uh, let's bring in our resident Danny Welbeck, preacher. Tony, you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, this is an interesting conversation for me because, as you said, my, my level of MLS knowledge is um, as good as none. So uh, I like being educated about football. So, And obviously we have an expert who I know you're just about to introduce, so let's get on to that. Yes, I mean, uh, firstly, this interlull has been quite boring and, you know, more boring than usual for some reason. But as you said, you know, thankfully we found ourselves in an excuse to podcast and that too with a very special guest. Uh, speaking of, we better bring him in. Uh, we're joined by Peter Coates, an expert in South American football, who you can find at Golazo Argentino on Twitter. Hello, Peter, and thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. Great you could make it. And, and we're thankful you're taking time out on a Saturday morning. Uh, you know, for those of you who don't know Peter, he lives in Buenos Aires and is a massive Argentina fan. He's contributed to, you know, well-known outlets like The Independent, who scored 442, which are, you know, almost staples in the footballing world, and can also be found usually, you know, talking on talking football on his podcast, which is Hand of Pod. So we thought it'd be a good idea to invite Peter on and talk about Miguel Almiron, who, of course, has been linked with a move to the Arsenal in the past few weeks. Uh, Almiron, of course, is Paraguayan, but has also played in Argentina before he finally moved to the MLS with Atlanta United. So, first things first, Peter, what's the correct pronunciation of his name so that we don't butcher it throughout the day? Yeah, I mean, no, you went far off there. It's Almiron, so the, the, the sort of stress is on that final syllable. Rodon, Almiron. Almiron. Lovely, lovely stuff. Yeah. Now, from the little reading I've done, it seems Almiron played in the first division for about a year in Argentina for Lanus, I think. Um, you know, what, what can you tell us about his time there? Was he someone that really stood out? Uh, what was the club and he in particular able to achieve during um, his time there? Yeah, well, I think um, his move to Lanus uh, is it really what brought his, his stock up and, and the attention to him because... Um, in a fairly short period of time, Lanús uh, went from being one of the smaller clubs um, in Buenos Aires to actually winning the winning the league. Um, and Almirón was certainly a central part of that. Um, and I think around about that, at the same time as as them winning the the title, was when actually Arsenal were first linked to him, um, which is why his move to Atlanta to the MLS was a surprise at the time because he, he was someone who looked ready for that step to Europe um, or at that stage. Um, I think what we saw at Atlanta, at, at Lanús, we've, we've continued to see in America um, when he was playing in Argentina in a 4-3-3. Um, we certainly got the best from him when Lanús dropped him a little bit deeper into central midfield and with his pace, he got a lot of joy from him being able to run from deep. Um, and since moving to Atlanta, we've sort of seen him in a couple of roles. He does have that versatility where he's, he's able to play uh, out wide. Um, he's also able to play kind of a bit further forward as a number 10 or, or even a second striker. Um, but certainly in Argentina, we saw the best Miguel Almiron a little bit deeper um, running, making those runs from deep. Uh and it did come as a shock, given how well he had done here, that he um, ended up going to Atlanta. I mean, you just sort of answered my, my second question here. So I'll jump to the second part of my second question, which was, do you think that was a poor decision in, in some way? Should he have waited for a move to Europe? Or do you think his time in Atlanta, which of course we'll talk about a bit more, uh, has done him good in terms of increasing his stock? I think it has increased his stock. Um, the only problem with moving to Europe from uh, the MLS is that I think it's a bit more complicated. Um, Argentinian clubs, especially a club like Lanús, don't have any money. So they're a you're able to, in general, buy players from these type of clubs relatively cheaply. Um, and I, whereas I think a club like Atlanta um, will 
likely demand more money and negotiations will, will be more complicated. So a European club buying him now are, are obviously going to pay more than they would have done a couple of years ago direct, buying him directly from Lanús. Um, but from a footballing side, you would say that he's, he's benefited. I think he's, he's worked well under Tata Martino, who was obviously a, a, a big cause for why Atlanta have, have um, bought so well in the market, particularly from South America. Um, and, and, you know, I think he's shown that he's able to adapt to another league, um, excel and, and still maintain that high level. So that's a, a, a sort of another bonus when looking at him as a player, if you're thinking, okay, not only has he maintained a high level of performance, but he's also shown that versatility to be able to fit into another league. I see, I see. I mean, let's talk about the player himself, of course. I mean, he's 24 at the moment, has, has played over you know, 60 games for Atlanta United, scored 21 goals, even just a 28 assists. And I mean, as you said, even for a central attacking midfielder or quote-unquote number 10, that's, that's very impressive in terms of numbers. How has Tarta Martino used him so far? And you know, if you want to explore the player a bit more, and and you know, I mean, I'm going to talk to you about how he can fit into an Arsenal team in the future. But so far, how has he been used? Has his role evolved with time? I think the key uh, parts of his game are still the same as as what we saw at Lanús. As I said, going back to Lanús, he, he was often a little bit deeper, um, which he, he is still from time to time played that role under Martino at Atlanta. Um, but certainly in Lanús' 4-3-3 he was, he was a bit deeper and it, it gave him that space to run into um, I think now at Atlanta being pushed a little bit further forward he's probably posed a greater goal threat um, and, and as you said from those impressive numbers that's probably shown uh, but, he, but he does have that versatility I think with his pace ability to beat players he can play outside on either wing, really, as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think he could fit into a, a number of different systems. You know, I mean, he certainly seems to have, you know, an educated left foot, you know, as you, know, you tend to see YouTube videos and, and so what uh, in terms of how to judge a player. And, you know, as I said, I've not watched a whole lot of MLS. I have seen Atlanta United a bit more because Ezekiel Barco was someone that, that I was keeping my eyes on. So in, in the recent years, I have followed Atlanta United, and of course, the atmosphere there is supposed to be pretty good. Uh, but you know, I was I was interested to know. You know, he certainly wants to run past players. He has the pace to do that. But how do you see him coping with the English game? Do you think he shies away from contact, maybe because of his size? And as we know, the English game is known for its physicality. How do you see him fitting in there? No, I, I mean, I, th- I think. Um... It's always difficult to tell, even more so when you're making that leap from either South America or, in this case, the MLS to a to a league like the Premier League or, or any any of the top leagues in Europe. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, for, in terms of physicality, I don't think that would be a problem. In the Argentinian league, is incredibly physical. Um, some of the challenges in Argentina uh, borderline on the criminal at times. Uh, so I don't think that would be a problem and I do think with his pace he would fit in quite well with the, the, the pace that Premier League football's played at as opposed to some of the other European leagues so I'm not saying he's guaranteed to be a success in the Premier League but um, I don't think there's anything from his game that you look at and think oh I think he would struggle just uh, looking at looking at Arsenal specifically, and, and if the transfer does go through, who, whose space in the team does he take? Obviously, you said he likes to come deeper. Uh, he can play as a ten. Where would you see him fitting in? Fitting in at Arsenal, and, and said who who makes way for him, or is he not someone that would be coming in to start and, and looking to to gain a starting spot over over the course of a season, or playing the Europa League and trying to win his spot that way? I mean, given the competition, I think he, obviously he'd come in. He's not going to come in as a, a huge marquee signing, um, you know, like when when you went out and signed Ozil or that type of player. Um, so obviously he's going to face competition for his, for a, for a spot. Um, in that case, I think his versatility would be useful because in in a number of systems you could play him in a number of different positions. Um, personally, I did like him at Lanús in that role where he was able to almost go box to box, even if. You know he's far far better 
offensively than than defensively. Um, but in that regard, you know, you could you could potentially put him in that set, one of those central midfield roles, um, looking to burst forward from deep, like someone like Ramsey does now. Um, even you know, in in especially in the event that Ramsey looks like he's off, so um, you know, you could put him there. But as I say, you could put him further forward or on either wing. Yeah, I mean, that was my next question. Should should Ramsey's contract run out? Would he be the type? Could you see him as a replacement? Yeah, as I said, I think I think um, in a slightly deeper role, you do get a lot from him. Um, def- the defensive side of his game, they may have to be um, developed, um, and, and certainly the discipline of going with that will have to be drilled in. Um, but certainly he's an asset in that position um, and really drives the team forward um, and does pose a goal threat himself coming from those positions. Just, I mean, it's a phrase I hate, but just, just for, for people that don't know him like myself, everyone, every player is always the next someone else. When you sign someone, he's, he's the next this person or he plays like that person. What, what player in world football would you, would you say he's most similar to in style? Someone that obviously everyone would know just so we can build a picture of what, what to expect from him. Uh, yeah, you put me on the spot a bit there. Um, <laughs> let me, uh, yeah, um, uh, that's a difficult one. I'm just trying to think uh, of someone in Europe who's, who's sort of similar. I mean, as I said, because because of his versatility, I, I don't know if I would necessarily pigeonhole him as saying he's the next version. I mean, it's not really something I like doing too much anyway, especially from Argentina, because I grow tired of hearing the next Messi articles of anyone who's just quite small and good at dribbling. Um, <laughs> so I tend not to, to go into those type of uh, comparisons. But, I mean, as I said, that's the type of player he is. Um, just, just to and, butt, butt uh, in, sorry, Peter, but just to butt in, uh, again, I don't want to hype the kid, but... You know, as, as you mentioned, in terms of his profile, someone who can play on the wing, centrally, even a bit deeper. Maybe, you know, just again, on, a, on an academic level, maybe the next Di Maria? Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I think Di Maria is much more comfortable wider. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to see Almiron out wide. I think he could play there because he's, he's quick and, and can go past the defender. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think... If you didn't get the best out of him, people would say he's slightly out of position if you played him on the wing. Whereas someone like Di Maria um, has shown that he can he can work in the in the centre, but has spent most of his career out wide. Whereas I don't think that would be true of um, uh, of Almiron. But you know there are similarities in terms of their pace and running with the ball, um, the work rate as well. Uh, so there are there are those similarities, but certainly not positionally. Um, just. Would would a work permit be an issue? Uh, I don't think so, uh, given that he's a pretty regular international for Paraguay. So I would assume not, but I'm certainly not an expert in um, UK visa uh, issues. So I don't think it would be for that reason. I was just but... wondering if that would be one of the reasons that they're using the MLS, because I know it's still another foreign country, but it's a lot easier to get a work permit, just in general life coming from America than it is coming from, from South America. So I wondered if that would be one of the reasons why we're seeing more and more uh, players from South America uh, use where it used to be sort of Shakhtar uh, because it was very, or, or Ukraine because it was very easy to get a work permit. I wondered if America was becoming that new, that new place, so to speak. I think it's more sim- uh, simply financial, to be honest. I think as the MLS has grown, um, bigger and, and obviously they have more money to spend um in contrast the football in south america um gets weaker and certainly argentina with the with the peso uh taking such a pounding recently um the league is suffering so i think these clubs from Amer- from the u.s um are able to offer clubs here uh decent money money that they can't turn down and the same goes for the players and they think okay well it's a safer place to live the quality of life uh better um and i can have more money so 
they might now see it. Someone like Almiron or, or Barnes, as you mentioned earlier, throw it quite a young age, may not look at it as a as a, a move which I'll I'll stay there for years and years, but one or two years I could earn some good money and hopefully still get my move to Europe before um, it's too late. I think a couple of points there are, are still something that I'm trying to digest here. Specifically, you know, as you mentioned, that he likes to play that box-to-box so-called number eight role. And, and that sort of fascinates me a lot. I mean, in the, in the modern games, you know, especially since Klopp and Pep Guardiola have come into the Premier League, we've seen the, the devolution, if you will, of, of the number 10 role, which has sort of been taken away. And we've, we've seen the rise of players like uh, Wijnaldum, Milner, um, David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, of course, are probably better examples. But we've seen them become a bit more proactive, uh, who are, you know, who've been known as the number 10s of the world before. So the fact that Aaron Ramsey is, is probably on his way out and Almiron is, is coming in, if reports are to be believed, then uh, you know, it sort of triggers me into thinking that maybe Arsenal are trying to move into that direction. Um, and I think that will be an interesting, interesting future for sure. Um, just to talk a bit more about the player and maybe dive into some of the, the negative aspects, you know, quote-unquote negative aspects. Uh, has he ever gone through adversity? I mean, of course, his football career is very young, but uh, I wanted to know what sort of mentality and psyche the kid houses. Uh, has he ever suffered from an injury that we should know about? I, mean, I think he just p- picked up an injury for Atlanta uh, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I don't think it's anything majorly serious. Um, so he's not he's not suffered anything, you know, like a cruciate knee ligament in his career. Um, he seems like a very uh, down-to-earth, nice, nice kid from any times that I've seen him interviewed. Um, but, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any moments of great adversity. I mean, he started in Paraguay for Cerro Porteño, moved to Lanús, obviously did very well, moved to Atlanta again, has done very well, and is now on the cusp of, of a, a move to Europe. So I don't think there's been any huge drama that he's had to, to get over. But, um, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing when things are just going well for a player. That, that's good to hear because, you know, it, it's not easy when you come into a big club and, you know, whether that's Arsenal or some of the other contemporaries around. But, you know, you, you do face a lot of rotation with the amount of football games there are in a calendar year. And so on and so forth. So it's it's not easy to make that transition. But if you have that that mental attitude, that mental strength, and of course it helps. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch upon, you know, before we move on to maybe a broader topic, was uh, was Christian Pavon, um, you know, a player that again we've been linked with a, a bit and pacey winger. It seems that Raúl Sanlehi, who is our sporting director or, or head of football, whatever you want to call him, has a has a special inkling towards him. So. You know, having been placed in, in, in Argentina, what sort of prospects do you make for him? And uh, how, how would you like to characterize him as a football player? Yeah, I mean, Pavon is certainly one of the, the best talents that, that's come out of the, um, the top flight in the, over the last couple of years. And that's been evident by the fact that he's become something of a regular in the Argentina squad and obviously went to the World Cup. Um, but... With that comes along a much heftier price tag than than most players from Argentina. Um, Boca are obviously one of the minority that have a fair amount of money and are able to knock back bids, which I think they have done over the past two years or 18 months or so, um, when there has been interest. Um, you know, I think his release clause is something around 30 million. Um, so we're talking quite a lot of money. For a player, um, but certainly he is talented. Uh, he, as opposed to Almiron, is someone who's a lot more comfortable in those wide positions. Um, can play as a sort of second striker, but ideally in a four-three-three, I think either side of a, of a central striker on either side, preferred position. Um, and I think is another one who just is his, his move to Europe is imminent, wherever that may be. Interesting, interesting. Uh, you know, it seems like the president of Atlanta has also come out and said uh, that the 11 million that's been touted around as as a as a potential or agreeable transfer fee is is nowhere close to uh, 
what, what they would accept, and they probably want three times or four times that. So if that is true, then we're probably in the same ballpark. And, of course, these players are quite different, but in an Arsenal context, who do you think would be a better get for, for us to bring in and who will be more ready and will, of course, do well by the squad? Uh, well, I mean, as a, they're slightly different um, players, so I guess it would really depend on 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 what you're looking for. I mean, if you want someone to play in one of those wide positions, then Pavon would be a better option um, than Almiron. But I think Almiron is able to, as I say, play in a slightly different midfield role. So that would be the, the major decision. Um, what would also be a, a huge factor is, of course, whether or not Almiron's price is the is the very low 11 or so million that was quoted in that rumour last week um, or whether it's what the Atlanta president or, or general manager said as three, four times that amount and, and then it would be more or less or something similar to what you'd have to pay for Pavon. Um, so they're the factors really that I think would play in, but I don't think the two are necessarily... Um, so similar that you'd ha- that you'd be making a decision based on okay, well, who's better? Because I think it would be, really be what are we looking for? I mean, I don't want to put you in a precarious position here, but you know, obviously, since since you're well placed in in the in the footballing world and in the area, if you had to take a swipe at you know the percentage chances or, or some or thereabouts of what are the chances of this transfer happening? Almiron, of course, I'm talking about here. Uh, w- what sort of a number would you throw there? Uh, well, I, I'm not anywhere near close enough to be able to say. Um, I think the chances of him moving at the end of the MLS season are, are very high. I think he's he's been there um, now for two seasons, um, taken Atlanta to to their position as perhaps favourites to, to win the title. Um, and whether or not that happens this season, who knows, but even if they don't win, I, I think it will be viewed as probably time that um, they move him on. Um, there's already talk about Atlanta moving for um, Gonzalo Martinez of River Plate here, um, which would suggest at the price of being quoted of around $15 million that they're already having a potential replacement lined up. Um, so whether it's to Arsenal, I wouldn't be able to say but I think the chances of him moving to Europe are very, very high. Fascinating. Well, Peter, this was certainly a, a good educational lesson for all of us. You know, I'm sure the listeners would agree that uh, this kid looks like a real talent. So, so let's see how this pans out. Uh, just before we let you go, we thought it would be you know, a good idea to talk about a point you made on Twitter the other day, that the MLS could potentially become a viable route for people from you know, the Americas to get to Europe. Uh, talk to yeah. us a bit more about that and you know certain talents or players that we should keep an eye out on in the future. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's a market which there's there's been a, a lot a lot over, over the years a number of South Americans that have played in the MLS, but I think we're seeing it, a spike in that now, um, given that the MLS clubs now have more money. Um, I think they're improving uh, the recruitment side of things, the scouting side of things. And are actively looking at South America as a market. Um, financially, it makes sense because there's a lot of very uh, hard-up teams who are who are in the market to sell players simply to to keep the clubs afloat. Um, and then, obviously, a lot of very talented players that can that can benefit teams in in North America. So, um, I think Atlanta have proved a great model for that. In the last couple of years, I think they've gone out um, and got a, a respected manager in Tata Martino, someone who obviously knows the market well, and they've therefore signed players. So Almiron has been a huge success. Um, they obviously brought in Joseph Martinez, who's, who's scored a huge number of goals. And then the big one last year, which, which caused a, a huge stir at the time in Argentina, was when they signed Ezequiel Barco from Independiente. Um, given that he was only 18 um, and had already established himself as one of the top players in the league. He was another one who was who looked certain to be going to Europe and then going for big money to the MLS was a, was a shock. But I think it's really woken a lot of teams up in the MLS to see the success that Atlanta are having. 
and saying, okay, well, that's a real potential route to go down. Now, I think the the critical thing, which is why I was making the point I was making on Twitter, is whether or not that's viable going forward. Um, and the success of that really, I think, relies on it going full circle, and therefore um, the clubs from the MLS buying someone um, for decent money, which satisfies the club in Argentina. Um, but then following on from that after a year or two, the player still gets the move to Europe um, and then is a success to some, what, uh, whichever level they enter at Europe. Because it, I think once that process happens, then more and more European clubs are going to look at the MLS as a potential market to buy from, which in turn, the MLS will continue to look at South America and the players themselves will look at it as, OK, well, I can still go to the MLS play for one or two years and get my move to Europe and I think if that happens then we're only going to see that increase as the money in the in an MLS increases and South American football continues to be uh, relatively poor so a potential Amazon on transfer if he was to go and be successful could really open the, the, the door for that it's certainly very interesting I mean I remember hashtag Barco watch was a very popular trend in, in in the U.S. when you know it seemed that he was on the cusp of joining, and Atlanta United fans were very very interested. So it certainly seems like the doors have opened a bit because, the, as you said, the quality of the MLS is rising because of these prospects who've of course come in and you know for the better economics involved. So you know I think there there is a lot of potential there, and if if you can continue to prove yourself in a different culture, then I think it does add to a bit of your you know your plus points especially when you're young so i think that's a that's a very important point that that we should pick up from from this conversation well tony is there anything you would like to ask peter before we let him go uh uh just just quickly on that on uh just one last uh question what where do you see his value closer to the 11 million touted or the the three or four times that that he that the uh, the GM of uh, Atlanta's uh, spoke about what? Where would you value him? Um, obviously, for a transfer fee, I would value him at more than at eleven. Um, I mean, as I said at the time, I think when I first said it on Twitter, I think that would be a bargain because um, you, you just don't get that quality. You don't get that uh, price really. And what does that What does that get you in the Premier League now? I mean, very little. So Someone from the Championship, in reality. Yeah. So for for a guy that's uh, a full international um, who's won the league in Argentina is certainly at the level of, of winning the league. One of the best players in the MLS seems very, very low. Um, whether it's four times that amount, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly somewhere in between um, would, would potentially still not be bad business for a guy that's 24 and a, and a full international. Um as I say, I think I, I think eleven would be astonishing. Fair enough. Uh, that's, yep, uh, that, that's all from me. I don't know if you have anything else, Trin. I think uh, I think we can hold off for now. You know, of course, as as more details unfold, we we can you know we hope you you can make join us again at some point and talk more. Uh, but you know, for now, thank you very much for joining us during this intro, level, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's been great. Um, yeah, and of course, if you if you need anything else, then um, just let me know. Wonderful. Thanks once again to Peter Coates. You can follow Peter at Golazo Argentino. Make sure you read his articles and bookmark his website, which is golazoargentino.com. Well, it's the international break, and Tony and I have nothing else to do on a on a Saturday afternoon. So we thought we'll talk a bit more about what happened, you know, in the past few weeks since the Premier League season started. And, you know, maybe look back on some of the things that, that we've seen under Emery and, you know, maybe caused a, a bit of a stir, something that surprised us and, and something that we project and expect from the team. So before we look ahead to some of our upcoming fixtures, uh, Tony, what's something that's surprised you over the past few weeks uh, seeing the new Arsenal under Emery? Um, in, in, in a positive sense, I, I would go... Uh how well Alex Awobi's played. I mean, obviously a lot of regular listeners will be probably surprised that it's me saying that. Um, but I think we've got to be honest with ourselves, no one saw this coming. Uh, even games where he's been subbed off early, and I said it at the time, when he got subbed off at half-time against West Ham, 
it wasn't due to his poor performance. It was just we needed a change in shape and, and he happened to be the casualty. Um, but I, I think he's played well in every game. I think some people are maybe going a bit over the top about how well he's played at times. Um, just because it is such a... When you go from a, a 3 out of 10 to an 8 out of 10, it's such a big jump that I think people are going, going over the top. But it has been sort of miraculous how the difference between the back end of last season in Wobi and, and the current Iwobi is it's like a different player. I think that's a very interesting point. You know, I think there's so much optimism right now around the club, which, which is brilliant. And, you know, a lot of people at the club supposedly cannot make a mistake right now, whether that's Emery or certain, certain players who are you know, new to the team or maybe even old to the team. It, the, the, the benefit of time has been given to the players and, and of course, to the, the manager and the backroom staff. So I, I think Iwobi has been very good. But, you know, I've seen a lot of talks about should he start in the next game or has he deserved a position? I don't think he has quite yet. And that's nothing against him. I think that's more testament to some of the other players we have in the team. And depending on the role that we see for Iwobi, which is, of course, on the left, that means you displace Aubameyang. And, you know, you, keep, you do say that football is not played on paper, but I'd still choose Aubameyang over Iwobi, even if it's 70% Aubameyang since he's shunned to the... To the wing, for me, in terms of a surprise, I think it's been, you know, and I spoke about this a bit on on the last podcast, is how the team has changed. You know, we've seen a lot of different lineups, we've seen different formations in a, in a few cases: four two three one, uh, switching maybe to a four three three mid games. We of course saw back five uh, in Azerbaijan, and then a four four two against Fulham. So, you know, I, I spoke about how I want a manager to be flexible depending on the opposition, depending on the occasion, and I think Emery's done that, which is something we didn't really see under Arson. So that's been a very big surprise for me. Yeah, I mean, as you said, under Wenger, it was even when we did switch formations, we switched for a period of time. So when we went to the back five, we stayed with that for maybe 20 games and, and then switched back. So even, uh, I know people could say, oh, but Wenger did change shape, but it wasn't like fluid. It wasn't one week we're going to play this way, next week it might be different. It was sort of stuck in stuck in his ways, uh, just his ways changed at times. So yeah, it has been has been interesting. I mean, even looking at the team pre-Fulham, I was in the pub um, next to the ground and we saw the lineups come out um, and it like obviously four four two didn't even factor and we were trying to figure out who's playing where. We thought maybe Welbeck right with Iwobi left and Mickey at ten. And then obviously so I mean even as someone who watches every game, we didn't know until I saw the players walk out onto the pitch and kick off, we didn't know how it was going to be played. So it must be very difficult for for teams to prepare for that. I mean, uh Fulham changed that day to a back five. Well, it was more of a back three, to be honest. But they probably wouldn't have done that had they known we were playing two up top because it left three on two um, in their favour, but three on two. But, I mean, when the, the two have got energy and legs, that's, that's ideally not what you, not how you want to be playing. And it keeps the players happy. You know, I think, of course, you need some rotation. Aubameyang, of course, was uh, maybe not 100% since he didn't travel to Azerbaijan and... Ramsey, of course, didn't start that game either. So it gives you the benefit of keeping the players happy, keeps their form ticking, because both Iwobi and Welbeck had good games away at Azerbaijan. And then they get to continue that momentum going into the international break. So I think that, that there's a lot there that comes with you know a couple of certain points that we spoke about. Uh, let's move on and, and maybe talk about you know something that you were shocked by, maybe you know a bit more negative connotation to this question. And we're not trying to be negative here by any means. We're just you know, basically reflecting on what's happened and something that, you know, maybe took you by surprise and, and you weren't necessarily expecting? Uh, for me, it's, it's Ramsey playing as high up as he has. Um, I mean, a lot of people are saying Ramsey's playing bad, blah, blah, blah. And in a way, I, I don't really blame him because he just can't play that role. Um, I get that he was initially put there to trigger the press. Um, we've kind of not abandoned the press, but we're not pressing it anywhere near the amount we tried to press against Chelsea and City. And it just kind of makes Ramsey sort of redundant in that role. Um, I always, even when he's played there, and, and we tend to have Ozil on the right, it, we always look 10 times better as soon as they switch, which does it does interchange during games. But as soon as we've had, um, like, so Newcastle away, Cardiff away, Ramsey sort of drifted more right. Ozil's come to 10 and we just immediately, straight away, look more dangerous. So 
it has been a surprise or a shock to me that that he's persisted with Ramsey that high up because he has he has changed things. A lot of people were moaning about the, the high line defensively, and, and he's changed that. Um, but the, the Ramsey, I don't know whether to call it an experiment, has has stuck. Um, I, I can't really see his thinking. I, I, I don't know what he's trying to achieve by it. Uh, it's not a criticism because he may have a plan, or he does have a plan, and it's probably light years ahead of what I'll ever understand. But just looking at it now, I can't see what the end goal is. Sometimes you can be playing bad or something not working, but you can see where what he's trying to do and where he's trying to work it. But with Ramsey at 10, I, I just can't see it. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I do agree. I think, you know, we sp- spoke about this a couple of weeks ago where, you know, we thought that Ramsey is the one tiring the legs off. You know, the, uh, I, I say a lot that football is you know you only have the ball with you for two minutes in a 90-minute game, and a lot of what you do happens off the ball. And with his intensity, his his nonstop work ethic, I think there has been a substantiated effort to do that. But you do lose an edge in attack, and we've seen that with a lot of charts and a lot of position maps that have come out after the games, where we've seen that four players in Aubameyang, Lacazette, Mesut Ozil, and Aaron Ramsey are pretty much crowding each other's space, and that leaves a lot of space for for the opposition to to invade because our fullbacks uh, push higher up. Uh, I think that has helped a bit with the introduction of Torreira because then we have a bit more solidity, but it's still not giving us 100%. And that's sort of what brings me to my negative, which is Aubameyang. You know, this is one of the most elite forwards we have seen in Europe over the last few years. You know, you look at his goals, you look at his XG, whichever stat you want to pull out, and it is probably in the top five, top ten across the board. And we've taken this player and sort of converted him into, you know, a makeshift winger where he's not really a winger. Now, some of that has to be factored in with how well Lacazette has done ever since he's come into the team. I think a lot of us forget that he didn't start the first few games of the season. So he basically earned his spot. So it is a predicament. It is a good headache to have. But when you don't have those naturally wide players, and yes, we spoke about the rise of Iwobi, but you know, I think 9 out of 10 Arsenal fans are still going to give Aubameyang the nod on match day. And that sort of puts us a, you know, a, in a bit of a, a puddle, which I don't really get a lot of optimism from. He's, he's an elite striker. Of course, both of the goals he scored in the Premier League that come to mind right away are, you know, are ones that he's come in from the left wing and... and uh, slotted into the the bottom corner, so he can do a job there. But it's we're not maximizing what Aubameyang can do, and I think Fulham is going to be a good template for us to proceed on because I think Emery seems to be open to the idea of a four four two, particularly away from home because it gives us that more solidity with those you know two banks of four. Uh, but then I worry about Mesut Ozil. Uh, where does he fit in? Uh, where does Mkhitaryan fit in? So it's it's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are still in the air, and along with Ramsey, Aubameyang is is one that that I think is is still a bit questionable. And I'd, I'd like to even throw Mkhitaryan into the mix, because I think Mkhitaryan is is the one is a player who does the small things. I know you know we've spoken about this a lot before, and I really like Mkhitaryan. I think he's somewhat gone under the radar. Obviously, there is mistakes he's made against Chelsea, and you know. He doesn't sort of bring a lot, but he's, he's a player who plays in moments. I think you called him a, a linker the other day. He links up play in certain moments, and those things, I think, go unnoticed a lot. So I really like him, and I like the idea of him coming on from the bench and, and being able to provide. But I don't see anyone else taking up that position on the right. Maybe a Welbeck, but you know, I, I still choose Mkhitaryan. How do you feel about that whole dynamic? Um... I've always been very torn with Mickey because I think what he does on the ball is lovely at times, but then he does have times when he's, I don't want to use the word anonymous, but he's just not in the game or what he does do isn't overly worth doing. And then when you when you factor in that his defensive work is truly shocking, I mean, it is honestly once amongst the worst I've ever seen um, at Arsenal for an attacking player. It kind of... I never know what to think because I know he's capable of, of brilliance, but then he's capable of costing you goals or costing you maybe not directly the goal because you can say against Chelsea when he made the massive mistake, there were still two or three more passes after his mistake, but it was his mistake that allowed them to get in. Um, 
I'm just I'm, I'm no I'm never sure with Mickey if the good's worth the bad. He obviously has games where stuff like that doesn't matter. I think it was at his debut or it was his home debut against Everton where he got uh, a hat trick and an assist. I think it was. And it was a hat trick of assists, I think. Yeah, and and you just you look at it and you like, okay, then then you can kind of forgive his defensive weaknesses. But then there's other games where obviously he's not doing that. Any game you, you get a three assist, you're going to be you're going to be highly rated, and, and it doesn't matter what you do elsewhere. But I look at us at other times, and I just always feel shaky. Even at three one up the other day against Fulham. I was like, I wasn't alone in saying, but there was a lot of us in the crowd thinking, just get him off. He moved over to the left um, because I think Ramsey had come on for a Wobie at that point. And um, yeah, he moved over to the left and, and there was loads of people just saying, get him off. Get, even get Kolasinac on as a left midfielder just because at 3-1, the game's not dead. And, and with how high their wingbacks were playing, it was Cyrus Christie on his side. He was just like standing alone the whole time. And thankfully nothing came of it. So I, I know you're a big Mickey fan, but for me, I'm always just a bit. I always see the negatives. No, that's fair. I think that there is a there's a lot of room for criticism. I mean, I, I want to touch upon, and I think something that he has been criticised for is the defensive work. Now, I want to touch upon that a bit because against Fulham, for example, he was not taken off amongst the substitutions, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. Now, if he is someone who is abandoning his, his defensive work, then I would imagine from what we've seen of Emery so far that he'd be taken out. You know, Mesut Ozil was, was taken out against Chelsea, and whether you believe in you know, the, the rumors of the spat or not, uh, he didn't feature in the next game because you know, he probably didn't do his defensive work. So w- why do you think then he wasn't taken off against Fulham? Maybe it was a concerted effort? For, from our manager to keep him up top so that he is one of those people who can get on the ball in the event of a counter and, and balance by, by bringing Iwobi back and sort of turning into into a 4-3-3? Um, I don't know, because obviously it doesn't matter about, say, dropping Iwobi in, because say when Sessegnon was, was going forward down the left, it doesn't matter if Iwobi's deeper on the other side. Um, and I, I think, obviously, Torreira had a spell at right wing. I know the game was already over by then. But I think that was just because Sessegnon had the freedom of the park for, for most of the game. So it was a it was a chance to stop him. And, and I know what you're saying about not, not dragging him off as Ozil was against Chelsea. But if you look, the, Mickey started against Chelsea and then and City. And then I can't remember Cardiff if he started. Um, I, I think it was him that made way. And then from then he didn't get a start for until Fulham. So you can look at it that it has been seen. And that was his chance to, to show what he can do. Uh, on both sides of the ball and, and again for me I think he had a decent performance going forward uh, you look into stuff like X, XG chains and stuff which I don't really value but looking at that you can't argue that the numbers were brilliant um, and his defensive flaws wasn't exposed but I think against a better team they still will be No I think that's a very fair point You know, against teams that let us enjoy possession maybe um, a quote-unquote luxury player and I don't like that tag at all but a quote-unquote luxury player like Mkhitaryan has seemed so far is someone we can deploy along with the likes of Amesado as well because we need to break those compact and, and stubborn defenses. Uh, let's move on and, and maybe talk about you know the what, what we expect. So, uh, not a bold proje- prediction that we that uh, you know that we've been doing, but uh, we have seven fixtures coming up soon uh, in in the remaining of October and then November before we go into the next international break. So we'll talk about the fixtures and what we expect from them individually, but something that you expect, maybe an enhanced role for a player or someone who gets benched a bit more often? Well, uh, mine's mine's a bit the opposite. It's something I don't expect, which I think a lot of people do. I think, obviously, we saw us play 4-4-2 the other day with with Danny and and Laka, and uh, I think a lot of people naturally thought, oh, he's he's paving the way to play uh, Aubameyang and Lacazette together. Um, obviously, Aubameyang uh, had been ill and didn't travel midweek, so it looked like that's why he didn't start. But I don't expect to see them paired together in a 4-4-2. I think Danny is perfect for the second striker in that kind of role because he'll do the running for everyone else. And I'm aware, like, uh, sorry, Aubameyang is probably quicker than Danny Welbeck, or it's very tight. He has similar similar pace, but I don't think he gets through the work that Danny does. He doesn't have the aerial prowess that Danny does. So I'm not sure if it would work, and and I'm not sure if Emery will try it. Um, so I know I'm kind of sidestepping your question, 
but I think a lot of people are probably expecting them two to, to be played together in a 4-4-2. And I'm not saying we completely won't see it. I just don't think it'll be a regular occurrence like some people expect. We might change to it if we're looking for a goal with nil-nil with 20 to go or we're one nil down with 20 to go or whatever or one nil down at half time as we've seen but I don't think uh, it will be like a staple uh, that's how we play yeah it's hard to disagree with that you know one game we haven't really seen the pattern emerge so a week a few days before a 4-4-2 we played a, a you know a, a five a five at the back three at the back whatever you want to call it so uh, I think it's more to do with the flexibility as I spoke about than than really marrying one philosophy or one one formation. It's good to have that in the locker so that you can pull it out on game day and really take the opposition by surprise. But yeah, I, I'm not convinced it's it's one to stay uh, from here on out. In terms of my projection, I think I, I don't have a very standout projection, but I don't think Nacho Montreal will be ousted. You know, a lot of people had a lot of hope for Kolasinac and we've seen that he's not quite up to it defensively. And in the same way, I don't think Rob Holding is going to continue uh, once Socrates is, is back and fully fit. There's been a lot of hope for Rob. For me, he's he's one that could probably go on to become an Arsenal captain in the future. I know I've said, said that about Guendouzi, but I feel very similar about Holding as well. Uh, I see a bit of Tony Adams in him. Um, I don't know why it's, it's an intangible, but at the moment, I don't see them, you know, I don't see him carrying on and I expect Socrates to come back. So again, not a very bold one, but considering what we've seen over the past few weeks, I don't think he'll continue despite his excellent form. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fair enough. I'm not really sure where, where I really stand on, on, on holding because not his ability as a player, I mean, as in terms of staying in the team, because I think he's been very good um, pretty much every game. He looked a bit shaky at times at Carabag in the back five, but he also played the wrong side. He's always played on the left for us. Um, and and that that day he played on the right, um, and then when we went back to a back four, he switched to the left again and and looked fine. Um, but apart from that, he's looked good in every other game, and, and we've not played useless teams. Obviously, it was coming on against Everton, um, playing against Deeney and Gray, who were arguably one of the most feared partnerships at the time we played them, um, and then uh, obviously the Fulham game the other day. So I don't know if he's going to stay in. Um, I would usually say he wouldn't, but Emery does tend to reward players for playing well. That's true. And I mean, I like to see that in my manager, you know, the, the meritocratic part. I, I don't mind that. And, we, and to be fair to Arsene, we've seen that from him uh, a bit as well. Uh, not a whole lot, but we've seen that from him. You know, he's obviously given youth chances and he's always encouraged them. But when you have a fully fit squad, then maybe Emery is a bit more inclined. You know, as you were speaking, something came to mind. So before we move on to the fixtures that we that we play over the next month and a half, uh, I wanted to talk to you about El Neni. Now, he recently got a contract at the at the beginning of this year, I think, and and we sort of welcomed that idea. I think at that time he was doing pretty well. Uh, we were suffering from injuries as well at that time, I feel, and uh, maybe Granit Xhaka was suffering from uh, bad form. So he came in and you know took some of the heat off of Granit and. You know, earned himself a, a contract. Now that could be asset protection for all we know, because it seemed like there were links with Leicester maybe in the summer. That didn't materialize, but you know, it's happened over the past couple of summers where he's been linked with a move away. Now against uh, Karabag, he had a solid game in terms of his passing numbers. I don't think he misplaced a certain pass, but if you look at his map, it's you know very square. In more instances, it's backwards than forwards. You know, we come in here and talk about Granit Xhaka a lot, and we talk about how he keeps us ticking over. But at the same time, personally, I don't quite understand and like what El Nani brings to the table. Am, am I being a bit unfair to him? Um, look, I'm not a fan. Uh, I, I think you with, with Xhaka, you get. I think ticking over is, is probably the wrong word. I think he's more progressive, but whenever you're progressive, you're you're more likely to make mistakes, and, and that's what we see with Granite. With El Nenny, you're you're more likely to get a 90 plus percentage pass completion. It's where them passes go and what they do, which for me is the issue, and and I think for you, that I would rather someone like Granite who maybe gets 85, 80 percent pass completion, but the majority of them are forward. And someone like El Nenny that gets between 90 and 100, but they're they're sideways and backwards. Um, I, I don't I, I don't really think El Nenny adds anything. 
um, he's not exceptional defensively, and and he just keeps the ball safe when when he's passing. So he's not exceptional offensively either. I think he's one of them. He's good to have in your squad. He's always going to work hard. He's always going to try. Um, but I think you come back to asking what is he good at, and it's very hard to to give an answer. You can say he's got great energy, but how much is energy worth on its own when you don't pair that with something else? I mean, obviously, you could say Ramsey's biggest strength is his energy, but then you can also pair that with his eye for goal, his late runs, his support in the attack. And, and yeah, look, there's loads of negatives with Ramsey. But with Elneny, as I said, what what would you say his positives are? And for me, I can't really pick up too many. Um, neither can I. I think apart from the fact that he's safe, which obviously is a big positive, uh, you know, although we are talking about it in a negative context, but it is positive. Let's not... I discredit well, there's that. a time and a place. There's time and a place for it as well, because I, I think when you're safe at all times, there is times where risks have to be taken. Absolutely, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not discarding that. I'm just saying that when you are safe, it brings a certain amount of, uh, you know, positivity to the team because you're not losing the the possession a whole lot. So, where, where there is a negative connotation to it, there is a positive one. But I think the other one, which you know is a very small one, is that. He's available to deputize for for one of our midfielders, which you know you need to rest some players every now and then, and that's not really a big positive to have for someone who's on what fifty grand a week, you know. And I think ever since we've seen the introduction of Guendouzi, not to say they do this, the same thing, but I think Guendouzi is someone who's going to really push for that position. I think he's the number one uh, off the bench, as we saw against Fulham. And you know th- that surprised me about uh, about Emery's decision there. That I think Elneny was on the bench that day, wasn't he? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, but again, for me as well, I'd I'd rather see. I know that they play different roles within the same position, but I'd I'd rather see Maitland-Niles there as well, who's obviously back to fitness now. So if you're looking, I would say first choice is Torreira and Jacka in in the midfield too, in whatever guys it's played. Then. Whether it's Gwendouzi at the presently is free, and you'd say on oh, then he's four, but with Maitland Niles coming back, for me Maitland Niles would be would be three or four, probably four. So that that leaves El Nenny as your fifth choice centre midfielder in a system where you only play two, and if you do start playing three, you would arguably drop Ramsey into that three. So he doesn't move anywhere up the pecking order because instead of becoming fifth of two, he becomes third of, uh, sixth of three. And that's exactly in, in my eyes. And that's exactly it, you know. That, so he is available at the moment because I sort of forgot about Maple Niles, but uh, he's there to deputize. And I don't think a, a player who's on fifty grand is is someone you need to have in that position, you know, at a club like ours. So I, I like the guy, you know. He he doesn't kick up a fuss. He mocked Alexis Sanchez on Twitter, which is probably still the best thing he's done, other than you know, of course, he scored a goal at, at the new cap, which was which was pretty good, but that didn't lead us anywhere. But I, I don't think he's going to stay at the Arsenal for too long, and you know, I don't think it's a loss that we need to worry about. But I would like to, you know, see us get rid of him at some point and maybe bring in someone else, or or give Niles and Guendouzi enhanced chances. So that's just, just something I thought I'll touch upon. Uh, moving forward, now we have four Premier League games before the next international break. We have Leicester City, which is a Monday fixture, uh, which I'm sure you'll be going to, and then we have Palace away. We host Liverpool at home and then Wolves at home. So that's four games. What do you think is a is a good number to be able to achieve out of these in terms of points? And what do you think we will? Um, it's a difficult one. Obviously, with some of the fixtures, I mean, being a month away or just under a month away, and you never know what happens in football. You never know what's going to happen in six days in football. Um, they're, they're all difficult fixtures in their own way. You may look at the table and say, our oh, Palace are are down near the bottom and, and we should be beating them. Leicester are not pulling up any trees. But they all have aspects that, that will bother us. Um, I know Palace haven't yet scored at home, but you don't... I mean, Zaha running at Bellerin all day, which is all they're going to do. They're just going to try and give the ball to Zaha. And if we have someone like Mkhitaryan in front of Bellerin, as we did the other day, then Zaha's going to have a field day. You can say the same with, with Vardy. If, if we defend high up, Vardy's going to have a field day against our, our back line. So I think they're all difficult fixtures in their own way. Um, Wolves obviously don't concede much play on the counter. I think they played, was it, I think it was four games last month and scored five goals. Um, but they won three and drew one. So you kind of can't knock it, but it shows how good they are defensively. To win three games and only score five goals is is, is an achievement in itself. Um 
So I don't know. I you could you could make a case for us dropping points in all of the games. I expect to win. We should be beating Palace. We should be beating Leicester. And we should be beating Wolves. But I don't think any of them are easy fixtures. Liverpool. Who knows? I mean, I've seen a lot of people saying, "Oh, they're on bad form." But I mean, one they've got three. It's the, they've got three league games. Well, it's the third league game they've got. They said they've got two more league games before that. They've also got one or two Champions League games before then. Uh, and no, they went out of the cup to Chelsea. So they've got they've got three or four games before then. So form may not come into it. Um, they've also, I mean, I, I kind of hesitate to say they've played, they've had bad form because they've played Chelsea twice. Um, one of which with a reserve team. Uh, they've played obviously City. And then they've played a, good, a very good Napoli team away. And they haven't been overrunning any of them. They drew with City, drew with Chelsea, lost 2-1 in, in the Cup with as a second-string a second team. And they lost 1-0 in the last-minute winner to Napoli, as I said, away, and who were a very good team. So I wouldn't take their form too much into it. I'd, I'd take a draw now, to be honest. Someone said on the, whatever it is, 4th of November, you will draw 1-1 with Liverpool. Yes or no, I would say yes. So that equals 10 points, if I'm correct? Yeah. But I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we don't achieve that. But I also wouldn't be surprised if we get all twelve. Fair enough. I think uh, I'm maybe a bit more conservative in my outlook. I think apart from dropping points against Liverpool, I think Leicester and Palace, Palace more so, I think would be a tricky one uh, for the reasons you outlined and for the fact that we were playing away. You know, Sellers Park can be buzzing, and it's it's not an easy ground to go and get points at. So I'll probably go with eight, uh, just so that just because I think we'll maybe get a draw against Crystal Palace and a draw against Liverpool. Again, nothing to take away from Wolves. I, I actually think Wolves is the game that, uh, aside from Liverpool, obviously, I think Wolves is the is the trickiest one of them because they will be more than happy to get a point at the Emirates. That's true. And, and you know, they, they are very good defensively. And they have very good quality in midfield as well. Um, so it will be tricky. And it's one of those games where you, know, you, you could get a bit complacent, but... Uh, it will be tricky, uh, but I do expect us to get get points. I mean, I know they be, you know they got points against United at Old Trafford, but I, I sort of get the feeling that the Emirates has sort of done us pretty good in the last few weeks and if not months. So I, I fancy our chances a bit more there. So that's that's eight points for me, and anything above that is obviously welcome. Uh, we also have Sporting uh, to play in the Europa League now. So far, our games against uh, Europa League opposition have been you know, walks in the park, if you will. I know Karabag was a bit tricky, but at the end of the day, we, we secured the points pretty easily. Uh, and I got my prediction right of Guendouzi scoring, just to throw that in there. Uh, but Sporting is not going to be uh, you know, as easy as that. Have you seen any of them recently? What do you think this is going to be like? Is it going to be as easy as we feel, or do you think it might be a bit tougher than that? I don't know. To be honest, I've not seen anything of them since they lost all the players they did in the summer. Patricio, Carvalho, Martins. Uh, I believe there was one other, but I can't remember. Um, so I've not seen I've not seen anything of them from since then. I mean, I know that they were one 0 down with Vorskler with about three minutes to go. I think. Well, I know they end up winning with it in the last minute winner. So if you're going to judge on that, you, you probably judge they're not the greatest because Vorskler. I know it was four two, but they really weren't very good. Um, it'll be difficult going away first. It's a big stadium. I don't know how, how well they'll fill it. If they do, it will be quite intimidating. And I'd imagine we're going to go over a, a very much the mixed team again. Um, some youngsters, Smith Rowe deserves his place, in all honesty. Um, but then you should probably, depending on fitness and whatnot, have the likes of uh, Welbeck and El Nenny who are more experienced and, and bring something different to the team. Um I don't think it will be easy, but I would expect. I actually think if we do lose it, because he will want to win the group, I think he'll go exceptionally strong at home because it looks like it's going to come down to head to head between us and Sporting. So if we lose, say, by one goal away, I think he'll go almost full strength at home, um, get a two goal victory, uh, at least a two goal victory, and then that sort that almost guarantees you're going to top the group. I mean, bear in mind, obviously, it's head to head, not goal difference. Right. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be. Not easy, but I think I expect us to fully get the, the six points against uh, against Sporting over the two legs. Uh, as you mentioned, apart from the fact that they've lost some key players because of the issues they faced in the summer, I think Emery has made a statement in, in choosing strong squads. Now, you know, it could be to get a good start in the season uh, in the Europa League, of course. 
but I think at the moment, you know, since we just have those two games in the week, which of course is, is, is gruesome in its own way, I think we'll continue to use our squad and and bring some of the you know the first teamers into into these fixtures. So I expect six points against Sporting over the two legs, which hopefully will be enough to not worry about some of the later fixtures in uh, in the Europa League as we edge closer to December. That would win you the group. You wouldn't have to. You could because it's head to head. Our head to head over then would be better. Exactly. So. Yeah. So lastly, before we call the wrap for today, uh, Blackpool. Now, this is, of course, our EFL fixture, which is sandwiched between Palace and Liverpool, I think. So I don't know a whole lot about Blackpool. I mean, on paper, uh, it's going to be an easy fixture. But, you know, especially with Liverpool over the weekend, we might not field uh, some of our stronger players. What, what do you think to make of, you know, what do you make of this fixture? Yeah, I think it would be... A similar team to, to what played against Blackpool, maybe a little bit weaker. Oh, sorry, Brentford, uh, maybe a little bit weaker. Brentford are, are a very decent team, and I think they've created or scored the second most goals in, in the championship at the time uh, we played them. I think they were sixth, but it was like everyone saw them as one of the better teams, and just a couple of results hadn't gone their way. Um, Blackpool are obviously a further league below, they're not going great in League One. Um, but I still think I think you've just got to look that he wants to give the players minutes. So someone like El Nenny uh, will play, as I said, Smith Rowe, maybe Welbeck if he's not getting in the wide class as the first team at that point. Um, so it will just be the fringe players, but they are strong. Lichsteiner will play again. Uh, Centre back will be an interesting one. Hopefully Mavropanos is back. Uh, if he is, you'd imagine it would be Mavropanos and Holding, unless Holding keeps his place in the team, and then it will be Mavropanos and Socrates. So I think it will be all of them players, but I expect them to play in pretty much all of our, what I would call, not first string games. Um, but that's still a strong team. I think Ainsley, uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles will get a, a run out again. Well, not again, they will get a run out. Uh, Gwenduzi. So it will be them sort of players I would expect. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I knew a whole lot about them. So the fact that you say it should be an easy easy victory, uh, I'll just piggyback off that and uh, and expect three points on on game day against them as well. So well, I'll be surprised if we get three points because they're two leagues below us. Uh, oh, that's right. Sorry. Uh, I think we'll get the win and, and move on to the next round. Uh, so, I mean, in, in totality, I think it's fair to say that some of the Premier League fixtures are, are going to be tricky. Even sporting you know, can be a bit trickier than what we've seen so far in the, in, in the Europa League so far. So this is going to be a, a, a different month in that regard because we've seen us you know, pick up points with nine consecutive games ever since our loss to Chelsea. So this is a bit more challenging in, in some ways. And I know we played the likes of Watford and and West Ham, Everton, who, again, were not easy fixtures, but we made them look easy. So let's hope we carry forward with that momentum and, and pick up the points and, and the victories and you know what we can to, to proceed in these Cups. Uh, before we go today uh just want to let our listeners know that we have a whatsapp group now that has been referred to quite a few times on the podcast so if you're interested to join that you can find the link in our bio uh it's free for arsenal fans to join of course uh tell your friends about it and and come join the conversation there you know we we're it's gooners from all over the world from you know sydney all the way to to canada so we have a pretty good reach of arsenal fans and it's pretty much active throughout the day. So whenever you have time to kill, you can hop on in there and, and have a word with some fans, uh, you know, about whatever they're talking. So reach out to us if you want to know more about it, and you can find our link in there. And Tony, I'm sure you'd like to echo that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not presently in the group, uh, but I get sent screenshots of it pretty much nonstop. Um, seems like a good laugh. Uh, I just don't find the time really uh sorry i'm watching a game of football that's why i'll slow there yeah i don't really find the time but uh it seems like there's some good uh conversation good debates going on and, and debates that i'm sure in future will will carry on in into the podcast uh because there is some interesting topics brought up and we'll carry on that on and have the debate amongst ourselves on here and, and also use some replies from people in the group as as examples of what people have said and how fans are feeling I mean, it's very easy to put a poll up on, on Twitter about certain aspects and get yes and no people clicking yes or no. But I think with, with a conversation, you get full context of why it's a yes and no or if there's any 
um, re- like reasons behind that. Because on a, on a poll, you can't say yes, but like, do you want this? Yes, but whereas in a conversation, you can you can outline the the, the positives and negatives that you see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the reason we sort of created this group. And, you know, Tez and I are pretty active in, in, in those circles. And uh, it helps to, you know, generate some fodder for, for the podcast. So if you want to get involved, get in touch uh, at clockhand underscore talk. You can also uh, write to Tez at Gunnar Tez if you're interested in contributing towards uh, our website, which is clockhandtalk.blogspot. Uh, the lads are pumping out a lot of articles these days uh, about Torreira, Ramsey, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there, so if you want to uh, write, you know, ratings, whatever you have, opinion pieces, then then get in touch with Tez at Gunnar Tez. And thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading, and we will see you soon. Bye bye.